This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff here to talk about in this episode include... New York Public Library Map Riffing. Majestic Overwatch. Robin's Fan Expo Tips. And Le Corbusier, Occultist. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The cadastral lines arcing across the screen, the compass rose in the corner, and the word here be monstries, spelled monstries, not monsters, tell us we've entered the cartography hut, and perhaps even a slightly, ever so slightly, antique corner thereof, although part of it is as fresh as today's software update. Robin, what have we got for the children today? So, the New York Public Library uh, has an online map collection, and uh, it makes uh, many of the, the maps are available uh, through a Creative Commons license, although there is a slight hitch in that if you want something at a publishable resolution, you got to buy the file from them, but that is, that is but a, a slight hitch. And so uh, as uh, Cartography Hut, uh, which is, uh, of course, sponsored by our uh, friends at Pro Fantasy Software, sometimes a more challenging hut to come up with topics for because we're talking about something visual. So uh, we picked, however, from the New York Public Library collection a number of um, maps that we find uh, interesting and intriguing, and we're going to uh, talk about why we find them interesting and then kind of riff some ideas on how we might possibly uh, use them in a game. So you'll be able to find links to them in the show notes for this episode. And Ken, I see that you have... As a cartographile, a map domain, as it were, you've picked two uh, maps. So uh, why don't we start off with the first of yours? I'm looking at a map of uh, Brasso, brackets, Kronstadt. And I see all sorts of uh, lovely mountainous uh, hills there. So what is it that tickled your fancy about this map? Well, this is sort of the expected map. People have uh, are tuning into the cartography hut. They're they're twiddling the big dial on the front of their of their Philco set, and they think, "Oh, well, Ken's going to go on about Dracula." And sure enough, I did because among the maps that they have there in the New York Public Library are the Austro-Hungarian military surveys of what was at the time their empire, which at that time included the city uh, which is now Brasov in what is now Romania, but at the time was Brasso or Kronstadt in what was then Hungary. And the 
the thing about Brasov is not just it's a fine, lovely example of 19th century cartographic and specifically the German cartographic tradition with all those lovely wobbly mountains. It's also, if you look down at the cornery corner, uh, where Castle Braun is, good old Castle Braun. And where which cornery corner is this? The, the bottom left cornery corner, uh, right down in the, in the, as you can see, the sort of um, river valley that flows up into the in, into the mountains there, as the road sort of turns around the side of the river valley, there is a a little point that if you uh, go f- very uh, surprisingly deep into the zoom, you can see is labeled Branca, which I guess is short for Bran Castle, but it is where Bran Castle is, and Bran is one of the uh, castles built by the various. Uh, Wallachian and Transylvanian, uh, lords back in the 14th century. And it was somewhere where Vlad Tepesh is rumored to have stayed, but in fact, uh, it wasn't really his capsule. It was just a really well-preserved castle when the Romanian government was desperately looking for Dracula tourism. But it has been, it has become sort of evocative of, of Dracula. And the symbol, uh, is not the thing any more than the map is the territory. But when the map is neat looking and the symbol is cool, who cares? Right. And so you could print this off for your uh, Dracula dossier campaign and scrawl upon it and then make it a an artifact uh, that would either be... Uh, now, you know, maybe Dracula is old-fashioned. Maybe even today he prefers these old maps. He doesn't like to have to re-memorize the names of things, so maybe this is his map he's using today. But more likely, it's something that you find uh, in the files uh, from the day back in the original uh, 19th century part of the story. And there might be a, a clue scrawled upon it. Uh, do you have any other uh, ideas in mind for how this could be used in a game? Uh, the other thing you can do is you can use it if you're running a sort of um, what we called uh, for Shadows Over Filmland um, backlot gothic uh, game. This can be your area map, uh, since the odds of any uh, Anglophone game, gamer recognizing anywhere on the map, and, and unless you know that Bron is there, you, you can't find it, are pretty slim. So it becomes an area map for the, you know, the city and you got mountains and you've got the thing there. And so you can use it either just to establish local color or you can say uh, that the Frankenstein castle is here and the uh, mummy uh, museum is over there. And all of the other bits of, of backlot gothic that exist are just sort of scattered around and you use it as your as your campaign map. And it begins, like most maps do, just to sort of establish style and flavor and say you're you're in the old... 19th century, despite the existence of motor cars and uh, black and white film. But you can also sort of start taking inspiration from the area. You can look at that sort of deep uh, canyon that's up in sort of the upper left corner of the thing, uh, running down between the, uh, the, 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 the mountains and your, and, or that's not a canyon, rather, that's a ridge. You can look at the high ridge and you can say, what's, what's up on top of that ridge? Or you can go over to, some of the other local towns, and you can say, well, that local town right there is right underneath uh, the mountainside. It's all spang up against. Maybe they have a, a mine shaft or something, and start using it to riff geographical origins and geographical tags for your adventures, just like you would with any map. But because this is sort of an evocative, weird, Ruritanian-type map, you can create sort of evocative, weird, Ruritanian-type thoughts in your head when you look at it, or I suppose you can. Now, the map that I've chosen, uh, I picked because... Well, first of all, I think it reveals my bias for people over places, mm-hmm. but also it's a genre of map that I was unfamiliar with until I started exploring uh, the contents of the New York Public Library uh, map collection. And this is a page from an atlas, but it's actually a, a sort of a head-on drawing of two farms. Uh, the one farm uh, is the residence of Ebenezer Inglesby, uh, and the bottom one is the residence of T.R. Wolcott. And there are uh, little medallions where there are portraits of Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Wolcott. Uh, this is a map from uh, 1876 of Alabama Township in uh, Genesee County, New York. I didn't know they had an Alabama Township. Maybe they don't anymore. Yeah. And uh, the, the couple who owned the bottom farm looked very, very formidable in a very 19th century kind of way. And uh, you sort of get a, a notion that people posing for photographs in that era were uh, unnecessarily grim and and, uh, not lifelike because they had to hold their expressions that long. Well, uh, Mr. and Mr. Wolcott seemed to have decided to look grim and hold their expressions for this uh, engraving of their farm. And the thing that really sort of is evocative to me is that, oh, look, here's 
basically, this, I guess, is in having your farm and your pictures in an atlas uh, would be the 1876 equivalent of being in better homes and gardens or architectural digest today, right? It's an opportunity for these people to uh, show off their prosperity and their status in the community. They're important landowners, and therefore it's important to have a book that you uh, have their farm in. And uh, I kind of imagine, although uh, I'm just making this up, that probably the map makers went from house to house and it might have cost you a little more to be the Wolcotts and have your pictures in the Atlas. And uh, Ebenezer Inglesby only sprung for the, uh, the picture of his farm. But anyway, the way that you could use this in a, a campaign is, first of all, you've got a couple of instant uh, NPCs to interact with if there's uh, mysterious doings going on at the farm. And the sort of bucolic setup of these uh, buildings is something that you could uh, show to the players and give them a really obvious sense of a uh, not the uh, great god's eye view of the map that you're looking at, but a, a sort of a full-on, more human-scaled view of particular buildings and their relationship to each other. And so it, you could either have a situation where the uh, characters have to defend uh, these farms from uh, encroaching uh, monsters or horrors or uh, just historically realistic bad guys. Or uh, the other way around, this could be where, uh, you know, the Wolcotts could be up to no good. Uh, they've been gone long enough that they're not going to sue us. And uh, you could have to uh, invade uh, their farm and find out where the uh, monsters or magicians or, again, just regular historical bad guys are uh, hiding out. I also like the sort of Google Earth quality of it, right? This is basically Google Street View for 1876. You're down there, uh, looking through the, you know, you're, you're, you've got some, some sort of, uh, hocus pocus going on up in Genesee County, which is burned over district words, even if it's not technically right spang in it. Although it might be spang in it. I don't exactly know where Genesee is, except that it's upstate somewhere. Um, and I think it might be sort of in that Erie Canal type area. Close enough for electronic jazz. Close enough for electronic spillover. That's what I always say. And so the, the characters are, are going through the, you know, the map and it's like, well, look at that. It's a picture of the old Inglesby farm. And what is that? Uh, the, those three lines coming down off the houses, off the barn. Those are the, uh, lightning rods, obviously. But as we look at the lightning rods, maybe. As the characters are looking at the engraving, they see the sort of magical sparkle around the lightning rods, and they're like, oh, the lightning rods have drawn in power into the Inglesby farm, and we have to go and see what's up. And that's how they find things, or they notice that there's, you know, in, in their version of it, there's a hex sign drawn on one side of the farm, uh, and I wonder what that means. Or maybe even a screaming face in the Wolcott's up, upper story window that they see with a magnifying glass as it goes all the way down, and then they're like, did the engraver draw a screaming face in? Were the Wolcotts like really crazy? Is it a warning or is this map somehow enchanted because we've been staring at the Wolcotts and they've been drawing us in with their hypnotic gaze? Uh, more, uh, TR, I think, uh, Mrs. Wolcott's gaze looks more resigned than hypnotic, but th this is, I suspect, what happens if TR Wolcott is up to his old sorceress tricks. Uh, yes, indeed. And the, the depth of field in the Inglesby farm, I think, is very entrancing because the, the vanishing point goes further back. So there's a little shed in the back. And once you've, you know, gone into the first farm where there's the lightning rods, it's like, okay, well, what's what's back in the shed? I think that's a really evocative opportunity to give the player choices of here's a drawing of a, a, a sort of a more human scaled set of buildings that is more your point of view. Which one do you explore first, I think, is, is very powerful. Um, next, we have uh, a map of the cities of Brooklyn and Williamsburg and the township of Bushwick. Uh, what drew your attention about this map? Well, the other thing that I thought is, I mean, I have been interested in 19th century New York since reading Gangs of New York, much less seeing Gangs of New York. And there is there are a couple of really great true crimes that happen around 1850 in New York City that are uh, very much worthy of further study and gamifiableness. And the other thing about uh, Brooklyn specifically is, of course, that this, uh, the blue part there, that's Red Hook. And so if there is a secret cult of Mormo being set up under Red Hook, this is where they're setting it up. Uh, they're, they're putting their, their um, uh, secret sewers in and their, and their thing. So if you look at the 1846 map, uh, which this is, you can, maybe go back and and figure out where on modern quote unquote 1930s Brooklyn you have 
you know, a street that changed its name or a building that isn't there anymore or whatever else sort of uh, stigmata of the past. And it can, I think, be fun if you're playing a game where you're already in the past to then say the past doesn't know it's the past. It thinks it's the happening present. Here's the actual past, the 1840s. And you can, oh, well, back here, uh, that's a whole nother thing. Another thing that's uh, interesting is that one of those streets in Red Hook is called Van Brunt Street, which is the name on Sleepy Hollow, the TV show of the Headless Horseman. So I like the idea that the Headless Horseman has his own street in Red Hook. I think that there's any amount of fun you can do. You can be setting up Red Hook and the players are like, oh, my God, what borderline racist horror are you going <laughs> to unleash on us now? And it's a head fake, literally, because it's where the Headless Horseman has been building his giant you know, pentagram to bring himself back to life. And that's why Red Hook is magic-y and weird. And the, all the Kurds and Syrians and, and, and whatever else is that, that drove Lovecraft so bananas are actually recognizing the power and they're using all of their magical abilities to prevent it from coming back, that they're like the Poles and Italians in Haunter of the Dark. And so as you go digging up, you discover just like in Lovecraft's considerably less racist story, he, um, that the bad guys are in fact the old white Dutch uh, aristocracy of the place. So uh, that's just really scratching the surface of uh, this uh, really great uh, resource. We're seeing more and more of these sort of digital map sources come online, and with it, there's all sorts of ways to uh, spice up your Earth-set uh, historical games with uh, cool, ready-made uh, handouts. And so uh, I think any of these could be sort of a source of free association that you could use to inspire uh, your next game, which is what uh, using maps in games is all about. And so I think we can uh, be proud uh, of our uh, recent sojourn here in the Cartography Hut as we step into our next hut and or segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time, once again, for Among My Many Hats, the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast becomes the overt self-promotion of one of us talking about a current project. And in this case, we're back among the fruitful fields of Ken Writes About Stuff. That's the subscription series that Ken does for Palgarian Press. And this time, the latest installment is a follow-up to a previous installment, uh, and that is Majestic Overwatch, which is an add-on to Moondust Man. So, Ken, I guess probably the way to start to unpack all of this ufological wonder is to start off by catching people up on Moondust Man, if they don't already know what that is. 
Okay, Moondust Men is a gumshoe uh, setting or uh, mini game or whatever you want to call it, in which you play investigators for or and troubleshooters for Project Moondust, which is the uh, covert arm of the United States Air Force's UFO investigation and uh, extraction and killing uh, team. Uh, they they go around and where wherever they hear about um, UFOs or crashed space debris or any sort of thing that might be alien activity, chupacabra sightings, they send the Moondust team out to contain it, to make sure that it doesn't cause panic and, and craziness amongst the people, and to bring any surviving bits of it back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or Area 51 or wherever they happen to do that. And uh, in Moondust Men, it was sort of straightforward. You're the uh, tip of the ufological spear. You're the men in black. You're going out and you're asking and investigating. And there's Russians and there's Bigfoot and all the sort of great stuff that you can get uh, squoze out of 1978 uh, as a setting and ufology as a, uh, what do I want to say, religion, um, theme, <laughs> whatever whatever the midpoint is between religion and theme, that's Belief what ufology system. is. This, uh, belief system. There we are. Thanks, anthropology. <laughs> You make everything boring. But yeah, so the, so that was Moondust Men. And then to sort of respond to the, I think mostly to the fact that Simon really liked Moondust Men, as of course did I, because I sort of grew up marinating in this stuff. Uh, he wanted to see more stuff that you could do with the Moondust Men setting and suggested a sort of, um, riffing on or adaptation of the sort of XCOM world where the uh, United States uh, military in intelligence complex is at war with aliens and the aliens are messing with us and we have to sort of counter mess with them. And so I built something called Majestic Overwatch, which adds the ability to play investigators for Majestic 12 to your Moondust men game. Right. And so for those not, not as marinated as you, Majestic 12 is? Majestic 12 is the secret committee that was set up by uh, President Truman right after the Roswell crash to find out what the heck that was. And then they slowly accreted into their bureaucratic hands total power over the United States's alien effort. Right. And this is real history, not Ken made up history. Uh, well, technically, Majestic 12 is real made up history, not Ken made up history, because it never existed. It was a forgery that was created by enterprising ufologist, uh, probably William Moore. Um, and then released into the ufological community where it went off with an exciting bang. And so I took that forgery as sort of the, uh, the, the setting and I, I did not leave it. So the people that, uh, more put on the Majestic Committee in 1947, I said, that's the founding members of the Majestic Committee. So what does the Majestic Committee look like in 1978? What access does it have in the government? What resources can you use? And then I came up with a, a micro strategy game in which the aliens attack basically randomly and you have to allocate resources a la gumshoe to stopping them. And if you don't allocate your resources right, the aliens knock your resources down. And if you do, you get uh, crashed sauce, more crashed saucers you can drag off to improve your R&D base, which is, of course, the real reason we're doing this is so that we can bootstrap ourselves up under uh, Project Galileo. Uh, which is the third uh, little uh, uh, single in the series, Galileo Uplift, specifically, uh, and use that to build awesome gear for your Moondust agents and Majestic agents to use out in the field. And you can also play a uh, Galilean, uh, uh, one of the Galilei, they're called, uh, who are the sort of field scientists who go in and make sure that the gear works or that they can e examine alien uh, scientific establishments in situ or do whatever else scientists do in a role-playing game as opposed to what they really do, which is sit in a lab and do very hard math for a while. And so uh, the resources that you're allocating uh, in response to this alien invasion, what are examples of things that you would uh, do and play and uh, things that you would have to discuss with the other players and determine what, what would the trade-offs be? What are you trying to uh, allocate and why? Well, there's... There's a bunch of different sort of um, programs that you can uh, allocate the your, res your resources or your black budget. And it's just how much money is coming in from the rest of the government. How much can you siphon off of various uh, shadowy activities? And then the activities that you might uh, engage in include um, you might have a, a combat air patrol so that you are checking out the skies over America and the world versus a psychological operations 
to convince people that it's no such, no big deal if you saw, uh, swamp gas or whatever versus, uh, uh, point defense. You're building, uh, cutting edge lasers or missiles to defend Area 51 search and destroy operations. That's what basically the moon dust guys are. They're the people that, uh, go out and, and find out what's going on and, and jump on it, uh, versus, uh, earth defense, the, the secret satellites and, and, and radar. Uh, that, that we have to make sure that anything coming in from outer space is taken care of versus training versus producing alien technology versus R&D. So there's all the co- sorts of things you have to assign points to or can assign points among. And then the other thing that competes with all of those are individual projects. So if you decide we want to build an atomic spacecraft that can go out into space and fight the aliens on their own front, that's Project Orion, and that takes a giant chunk of your budget but you can do it over time. And so you can say, well, as we're building up our, our resource base to be able to build an atomic spaceship, we're spending our resources on that. And then that cuts back on our patrol or that cuts back on our point defense. But once we have Orion, it will really, really help with the roles against the alien attacks because we'll have that giant atomic spaceship up patrolling and the UFOs just won't be able to come in whenever they want. Now, it sounds like unless you have a group that's entirely composed of tacticians who enjoy... Uh, resource management and trade-offs and uh, maximum bang for your buck, in this case, literally, if you're trying to uh, allocate more money from the black budget, it sounds like this would be a great platform for troop-style play, where you play uh, perhaps two or even three sets of characters. You uh, cut between the uh, group of characters in their uh, in their war room, deciding what, making the big bureaucratic decisions that create the effects on the ground, and then you have your uh, investigator moon desk men going out and actually confronting aliens and getting shot at by laser rays and having uh, uh, Sasquatches try to uh, kidnap them and carry them off into the uh, woods to uh, read them comic books or whatever it is that Sasquatches want to do. Um, and is there like a, would there be a third uh, axis of that triangle? I guess the, the techie guys, right? Yeah, the, the, the Galileo, the guys from Galileo Uplift. And uh, there's a uh, somewhat less uh, intense a system in that for inventing alien technology or bootstrapping it from pieces of alien technology you found or, or whatever. Uh, then there's a bunch of alien gear that you can use in the field and a bunch of uh, modifiers for field operations that give you reasons to use crazy alien tech instead of perfectly fine submachine guns. And then whether or not the Galilei, the, the, the scientist becomes a sort of viewpoint character uh, is kind of up to the individual players. Uh, but there is a lot of interplay between the sort of uh, strategic level, what I call the um, uh, playing at the big glowing table level, uh, where you're the, you know, undersecretaries of the actual Majestic Committee making these plans uh, versus the, um, uh, the, the, the field level, the Moondust level. So each of the inter- interactions as the aliens get through your defenses and have a landing or they have an abduction or whatever, that can set you up on a mission, right? And then each of the projects that of which there are, I think a dozen or thereabouts have a number of missions that you can send your moon dust men out onto. And until the moon dust men do one of those missions, you can't do the project maybe, or if they do them, maybe that gives you a, an extra budget point or something. So there's plenty of places to do interplay uh, with that. And yeah, the notion of doing a thing where the group gets together and they make a bunch of decisions that screw over the field guy. I sort of got that from your old, um, uh, best friends, uh, 316 game that you, that you ran. Yeah. The, the American Empire, the American Empire game. game. Yeah. Um, and another thing you could do is you could play that level, the, the uh, glowing table level as a drama system. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. That you could, uh, yoke the, uh, gumshoe resource allocation to the, uh, interpersonal drama of the, uh, people in the agency and their loved ones as the alien invasion, uh, comes closer and closer. And, uh, you could, uh, you know, have a number of seasons of that as it sort of becomes more and more like a modern version of War of the Worlds. And it's all about the emotional impact, uh, of what initially starts out as just sort of bureaucratic, uh, turf battles, because nobody probably on some level at first really believes that, uh, things are really going to uh, hit the fan the way they do, and then you could uh, escalate that over the course of your uh, seasons of a uh, drama system. Yeah. So uh, was there anything uh, when you were researching this that uh, uh, you rediscovered that you thought was a particularly uh, great little uh, detail that uh, fit into this world that uh, made you 
tent your fingers in uh, sinister delight. Well, the thing about researching the American uh, <laughs> the American military industrial complex is that uh, they engage in exactly the sort of colorful idiocy that, where proper gameplay uh, blossoms. So there's all manner of uh, weirdness going on in uh, people's uh, backstories in their uh, in their careers, and once you begin saying, "All right." Which of you guys is secretly working for Majestic? It turns out there are a lot of ambitious junior Air Force officers in the 1970s that have been uh, going back and forth between weapons development at Sandia and laser research at Wright-Patterson. They slot in super easily. Uh, the notion that there is a second secret UFO hunting team, uh, Project Pounce, uh, which is basically the result of another U uh, ufology guy uh, saying, hey, I want to make something up and making it up instead. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that sadly doesn't make it in because of the, uh, the, um, uh, the word count problems, but I like it. There's a reference to it, but it, it does, it, it's paragraph went away. Uh, and so the notion that the ufologists are not, um, sticking to canon. And so it's very much where you read a Star Wars novel and you're like, hey, that, that got, uh, best been wrong or whatever. And so th there's a great deal of fun to that. And then, uh, when, uh, Simon commissioned the art, uh, he commissioned the art such that there is a guy wearing a turban at the table, the Majestic 12 committee table. And he says, I'm sure you can, you can figure that out. You, you can put a guy with a turban at a Majestic 12 committee table in 1978. And I said, well, um, I, I'm touched by your faith in me, but it turns out <laughs> there was an actual physicist named uh, Narayan Singh. He was born in Bihar, and he worked for reals with NASA and the NSA. And he went insane. He had schizophrenic breakout breakouts. He believed that um, uh, uh, Einstein was wrong and Vedic astrology was right, and he had all manner of other crazy beliefs that are very symptomatic of him basically having been exposed to the truth about aliens. And in our history, this guy got... Uh, he, he sort of <laughs> lost all of his clearances and wound up begging on the street in India until they recognized that, oh, we have a alpha level theoretical physicist just sort of wandering around the streets bankrupt. And so they put him in one of the Indian research institutes and, and set him up again. But the notion that we've actually got a cryptographer, mathematician, uh, theoretical physicist of Indian extraction working for the NSA and NASA at the exact same time that I need one to go along with a commissioned illustration um, that, that was kind of, uh, magical. So the, the scene where they find him on the street and, and take him to the Institute is the uh, amazing, great scene for a story or a movie or, or in this case, a game session. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, because that guy's still alive. I made it his psychic twin that's on the, uh, on the committee, but you can look it up and you can know the guy that I'm talking about and change it to him. If you want to make Simon's illustration inaccurate or a, drawing of the past, not of the present. Uh, well, uh, that's uh, a whole bunch of great ideas, and uh, the idea of playing this seems uh, very appealing. So I think we have done our self-promotional job, or in this case, our Ken promotional job, and can move on to our next segment. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a meta 
metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm gallon by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Because we at Ken and Robin talk about stuff are just as concerned with the state of the world's resources and the parlous position of our intricately balanced energy and material sciences on the crevasse of whatever disaster you're reading about today in the pages of The Guardian. We... Recycle audio now and again, just to keep everything on the straight and narrow, on the on the up and up. And this time, we're recycling audio from Robin at Fan Expo in uh, Toronto, right? The the one the that I went to a couple of years Toronto. ago. Yep. Right. And uh, in this particular uh, panel, you are doing probably the good old GMing tips panel that is the hardy perennial of such uh, large, open-to-everybody type uh, game conventions or media conventions, right? Yes, this was the Ask Robin Anything panel. Ask Robin Anything, goodness me. Yeah. So it still turned into GMing tips. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense. I, I can if, feel If that. I could ask Robin Anything, um, I, I probably spent the first four years of knowing you asking you for GMing tips in one way or another. Um, anyway, uh, so here we are. And an interesting fact about uh, this particular uh, panel is, as I understand it, it was part of the sort of diversity outreach that they have up there in Canada, because the panel was in, attended entirely by deep ones from Maine. Is that correct? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure it was a diversity thing so much as like a bus tour. Okay, right. They had yeah. like a, a, package like a package deal. They got deal. to go up to CN Tower and then go to Fan Expo. And uh, they posed with Jenna Coleman and Karen Gilman. Um, and they, because uh, they, they're confused, they thought it was Karen Gilman. Right, yeah. And so they were kind of cranky about that. But then they came to get their GMing tips from me. And they, I thought for, um, you know, Betrachean Monsters from the Deep, they had some pretty good questions. Well, let's go right to the audio then. How do I design an exciting climax into my adventure? Right. So the, the number one thing to do is to come up with uh, something big and exciting and culminating, yet be prepared to discard it entirely if the players go in a different direction. Yeah. So the focus should not be on trying to get them to the predetermined endpoint, but rather having an endpoint in mind that you can fall back on as the big cool thing. And uh, typically in storytelling, you want to look for something that uh, ending should rhyme with the beginning. So whatever it is that you started when you were opening your adventure will have little seeds in it that will hopefully lead to the biggest expression of that. So Star Wars, for example, starts with one star battle at the beginning where the good guys lose, and then it becomes even smaller and goes to this little podunk planet for a while, but then it gets really big at the end with the uh, Death Star space uh, dogfight. And so what you want to do is ask yourself, what is the main sort of thread or theme or, or premise of the adventure, and how do I make it blow up real good at the end? And so once you get that in mind, you might not necessarily want to have to nail down every possible way that the players could get there, but rather uh, as you're uh, running the game, assuming this is an adventure that you're creating for yourself, what are the different things that I can start to put into play in response to the choices they make so that they're not being railroaded, but they're responding to uh, choices that you put ahead of them that nonetheless start to, uh, first of all, lay pipe for the big sequence at the end uh, and then lead them also toward that. So. If, for example, you're doing a fantasy game where the uh, giants, uh, uh, there's a problem with giants, and you initially, you know, the uh, people come to you at the beginning, you want to introduce the giants in the smallest way. So this gets back to the idea that the way to build a great ending is to start with a, a beginning that starts to introduce that. So you start with, what's the smallest way I can have a giant storyline? And in this instance, oh, well, okay. Uh, 
what's the smallest giant that somebody can report? And what is the smallest thing that it can be doing? So maybe you hear a rumor that there was a giant tromping somebody's hay mounds. And as the, uh, and you know, you may put it to the players, why do you care about uh, giants? Why would you be upset if a giant was tromping somebody's hay mound? That already does a lot of the work for you because instead of them crossing their arms and going, well, I don't know if I'm interested in this giant adventure at all, you're just presupposing that they're interested and requiring them to explain why that is. And so if you th then, okay, how do I escalate the giant a little bit and, and have different possible ways that they could encounter other giants and build that? But you can also have a specific idea in the mind at the end. And so let's say there's a giant dam in the region, and the, actually what the giants are planning to do is that they're planning to destroy the dam and inundate uh, half of the kingdom and uh, create this massive flood that'll kill a bunch of people. So that's a terrible thing. You don't want that to happen. And you want to find a way to tie the players into that. So looking at what the different players have, oh, well, one of them is a thief, and we've pre-established that he has this uh, uh, sort of freezing magic item. Well, let's say that the giants actually need him to show up at the dam in order that they can steal his item, and that's the last thing they need in their fiendish 12-point plan. You know, point number eight is have freezing ray. And so then you have that happen, and then you have the big fight on the dam, and the stakes are if they win or lose, they uh, the, the dam inundates the kingdom. And so that uh, allows you to have a big image at the end, a big possible action sequence. Not all games need to end in an action sequence in a gumshoe game and in an investigative mystery. It, the, having everybody around the table as you reveal who the murderer is is just as uh, interesting and appropriate to what it is that you're doing as the dam bursting would be in the giant's adventure. So the, uh, the main points to summarize would be uh, think of a big, cool image think of the smallest possible way to introduce that at the beginning, and think of a bunch of different ways to lead them toward that so that they still have choice at every turn. And whenever you're doing something that kind of deprives them of choice, put it to them to explain why it is that they're doing it, because then that makes it a choice. How do I make my world dark? In a fun, credible way, not a wearying way. And the way to do that is to have things happening, but not necessarily... Uh, directly to them. So, uh, for example, if one of the problems in your dark world is that, uh, you know, there's this terrible wasting disease going around, or in a more contemporary setting that there is, you know, this weird drug that people are taking that is causing them to uh, eat each other's faces off, um, you don't immediately or directly introduce the threat of that happening to the player characters uh, because that is very, uh, you know, that's super upsetting. But just finding out that somebody else has had his face eaten off because of a weird drug or that all of the people in this village have got this weird wasting disease, if you introduce that well enough and give them a reason to care, and because you... Uh, in your own game, you know enough about the characters to know about things that why they you know why would they care so for example, if you know one of the uh, your sort of urban fantasy characters uh, has a connection to this particular uh, parish, uh, it can be the parishioners of that church who start to come down uh, with the disease or if uh, you know your resident good guy vampire volunteers at a homeless uh, shelter that's where he can discover this, this horrible drug. So have the horror sort of in a concentric ring uh, that's outside of them uh, to begin with and then is slowly moving toward them. Because very often in role-playing especially, but even in regular uh, storytelling, the threat of something happening is just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the realization of that threat. So if you introduce early on the wasting disease, the weird drug, they can start to imagine what will happen to them if they don't stop that problem, or what will happen to other non-player characters that they care about if they don't stop it. And just even that the threat of something is very powerful. So uh, I think the, the main answer to that question is uh, start with threats and bring about the realization only at the climax. So in a, a noirish or dark world, maybe in the very last scene, the threat of that character, you know, one of the characters is force-fed the drug or starts to see that they're, you know, getting the weird black veins uh, that indicate wasting diseases in all uh, fantasy settings, uh, then uh, that can be the big sort of culminating issue. And uh, you also always want to counterbalance it with some possible idea of hope. One problem with uh, some players in dark settings is that they're so good at imagining threats 
that uh, even threats that you didn't think to introduce, that they become dispirited even not with anything that you do. And in fact, it may be your challenge more if you have a group of players like that to have things that come in that you know, relieve the threat or, or relieve the horror that uh, you might, and that might be anything from sort of moments of humor or uh, to make sure that they do get chances to have sort of victories along the way, even sort of gratuitous victories that allow them to feel powerful and competent. Uh, because any uh, compelling narrative is about a series of up and down beats throughout a narrative. And, and we, uh, it, a great storyteller takes the audience through a series of events that they either uh, uh, hope will happen or fear will happen. So you're always, you know, tied between hope and fear. So when a character is getting in their car, trying to run away from the monster, and there's that classic move a moment in almost every movie scene where, yes, they're going to have trouble putting their keys in the car, and then they drop their keys. Well, that's a moment of, of fear. But then they pick up the keys and they put it in. Oh, that's a moment of hope. And then, oh, the engine won't start. That's a moment of fear. So you're constantly oscillating fear and hope. So if your players are getting too weary, uh, give them more upbeats, more moments of, of hope. How do I make wary players care about NPCs? Um, the, the answer to the first one is I'm going to use a variation of the presupposition uh, technique I mentioned earlier, which is rather than having someone come along, you know, you, you meet a hermit in a, in, a, in a hut and he seems like a really great guy and he gives you soup and, and it's like, well, he's either a monster in disguise or some damn rescue mission. No. <laughs> Screw your soup. No soup for us. Um, but in, instead, what you do is you say, well, uh, who is it in your life that you care about? Uh, because, uh, especially in fantasy role-playing, people sort of tend to imagine themselves as existing completely alone in the world, right? It's a band of loners except for each other. But in real life, uh, you know, most people, and certainly most heroic characters in fiction, have, you know, what in sort of social science terms are called a support network, people they care about. But the other part of that is that those people help them. Um, so what you can do is you can introduce a mechanic even if they're very reward-oriented players, where, well, if you want your experience points, uh, you not only have to kill all these guys in the dungeon, but then you have to go and you know, tell the Baron about it and then get rewarded at the feast. Or uh, there are people, uh, an important commodity in, in any narrative is information. So characters who you know are going to give you information. And not only that, when they do give you information, they're not going to resist you uh, the way that most characters in most scenes should, because interesting scenes are all about dramatic tension. But these are the guys who are going to actually say, so how did you do in that dungeon? You feeling okay? Hey, I have a healing potion for you, right? And so give them the support that we get from our real loved ones in real life, that if you want people to care about uh, your NPCs, the NPCs have to care about them in return. And, the, uh, and so if you're uh, more likely to get a reward from the NPC than to have them turn into a plot device when they get kidnapped or murdered, uh, that automatically solves that problem. And then when the Chamberlain, who they usually go to to tell about their missions and get their experience points and their feast at the end, then when he gets kidnapped, it's not just that you have uh, tricked them into caring about something, it's my resources are under threat. That, that guy gives me all the feasts that I turn into experience points. Well, if there's experience points in it for me, well, sure, I'm going to go and, and go into the goblin horde or, or whatever it is. So uh, if they're very reward-oriented players, uh, they're not wrong to think of uh, caring about people as an investment. So you should uh, find ways to pay off that investment. Uh, and that concludes my questions from uh, Fan Expo. There'll be another segment of Recycled Audio coming in a future episode. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... 
you can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, it's update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. It's once more time to visit the consulting occultist, but this time we find him outside of his usual environment. He's not in a Edwardian parlor. There's no... Uh, image of Madame Blavatsky glowering at us, not even creaky stairs. We're in a vast cube-like concrete structure because this time the consulting occultist is going to tell us about the occult tendencies of famed architect, the sort of uh, a grandpappy of uh, modernism, some might say brutalism. I, I think he would, he say, would brutalism. say brutalism. Because he was that kind <laughs> yeah. of guy. Uh, <laughs> he was Le Corbusier, and like most people whose names begin with the, he has an actual real name, and that's Charles-Edouard Genera Gris, and he uh, lived from 1887 to 1965, and uh, I guess before we get to the occult bit, we just need the uh, 101 on Le Corbusier. Okay, uh, Le Corbusier, as you point out, was not actually born Le Corbusier. He took that pseudonym from his maternal grandfather, uh, whose name was actually Le Corbusier, uh, but there is perhaps an occult significance, which we will get to, to that pseudonym choice. But he was born in Switzerland, in Le Chaux de Fond, and um, uh, just sort of dinked around as an architect until he reinvented himself in 1920 as Le Corbusier. And then he just sort of um, uh, uh, painted stuff and, and wrote a bunch of manifestos about how you should build things if you're going to be proper and uh, wound up uh, uh, flirting with the communists because everyone who was terrible in the 20th century did that for a while. And then he wound up uh, becoming somehow uh, the guy in architecture and began building these sort of enormous, ornament-free, angular buildings that he considered to be the way that you had to politically and morally build. You couldn't waste fripperies on ornament because, by gosh, the working man needs a box to live in. And as he put it, the house is a machine for living. And so you take all the parts off the machine that don't get the cogs turning and the and the boiler boiling, and you uh, pop people into these... Um, uh, yes, the, the, the people in his buildings are the messy, squidgy things that are kind of wrecking the lifestyle he's trying to impose on them. Right. And the lifestyle is to is that every if once everyone is organized and uh, all the buildings are in place on a particular on a precise grid and all the architecture is is modern and there's no cruft of the past anywhere around, they will be able to uh, move into the future and be proper Marxist uh, proletariat instead of a bunch of whiny Swiss and Parisians and Swedes and whatnot that they actually were. Right. So if you see the Metropolis and you see the, the, the workers in, in Metropolis and think that that's the great part, <laughs> and that's the <laughs> thing you're supposed to aspire to in Metropolis, that's uh, kind of the worldview of uh, Le Corbusier. Although although uh, one in which they're self-organized into Soviets, not ruled over by a cruel plutocratic elite. They should be ruled over by a, a cruel meritocratic right. elite instead. A, a vanguard of imperious architects. Exactly. Uh, of imperious architects. Yeah. So it's... um. Uh, so he, he winds up, uh, also, uh, sort of doing a lot of urban design. If by, if, if by design you mean, uh, shooting cities in the heart and letting them bleed out. Um, but he, he very much, uh, believed that, that cities should have this sort of, um, radiant, uh, spoke and hub architecture. There should be lots of grid patterns. Everything should be put out. There should be exactly rationed, uh, little parks around, uh, very much the whole, uh, planned city, uh, culture that uh, works only if you're Daniel Burnham and at no other time he managed to destroy a good part of Stockholm uh, by convincing them to, to rebuild it. Uh, uh, for example, he talks about um, 
uh, cleaning and purging Stockholm, uh, which is not the kind of talk that I think Stockholm needed even in 1935, much less uh, any time before or since. He was a big fan of Gropius and uh, the Bauhaus, so it, it was it was an awful lot of, you know, uh, why can't we have a building that's as beautiful and as functional as a grain silo? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer and is because grain the, silos Egyptian are ugly, and that's why they're but... put out on the plains in Nebraska where no one has yeah. to look at them. <laughs> he wound up um, sort of uh, sucking up to the Vichy authorities for a while. Um, and, uh, he then just, Are just to sort of complete the people attracted to authoritarians can then be attracted to the opposite variety of authoritarian. It turns hmm. out. Yes. And then to, to complete his, his, his multifecta of awful, he went and worked for uh, our old buddy, Alexis Carell, uh, on eugenics because why not? <laughs> yes. If all those people are going to complain about having to live in a concrete box if you don't improve them genetically. Um, so that's the, uh, uh, that's the, uh, uh, somewhat opinionated version of, uh, Le Corbusier. Where does the occult stuff come in? Okay. The occult stuff comes in, uh, according to the author of Le, Co Le Corbusier and the Occult, J.K. Berkstead, it comes in with Freemasonry, which was a big deal, uh, and a hotbed of radical thinking in, uh, Switzerland, in specifically in Le Chaux de Fond, where Corbu grew up. And he is not provably a Mason. I want to get that out of the way because Berkstead takes forever to say, oh, by the way, he's not a Mason after trying to tie him into Freemasonry in every possible way imaginable. Um, Corbu definitely was interested in Masonry. He uses a lot of Masonic imagery in not just his uh, theoretical writing, but also in some of his designs. Although, again, since Masons like right angles and fascists like right angles, it it doesn't seem like you know, I would say that there's necessarily a smoking gun there. But he also writes, for example, a set of poems a accompanied by drawings or paintings called uh, The Poem of the Right Angle, which can be read uh, profitably as an, a poem of alchemical dialectic that the uh, each of the of, of what he called the um, the iconostasis of the paintings is in a relationship with another one. And the, the layout of the, of the paintings as he drew it is sort of like the tree of life a little bit. Um, you can sort of see it from there. Certainly it's if Corbu's like, Oh, well God's, uh, separate are messy. I will reorganize them. Then you can sort of see where he's coming at from that. And then a lot of it is, is very much, uh, has, has a lot of sort of alchemical and, uh, color magic sort of, uh, of notions tied into this poem of the right angle. He, he did a lot of painting. He does a lot of writing that has occult uh, tendencies to it. And he did, especially towards later on in his life, start bringing things like Neolithic uh, dolmens into his architecture. So if you look at, he designed a church, for example, that looks very much like a, like a Maltese uh, a dolmen. Right. He ran uh, out of regular just, things that were imposing. So he went to the, right. the dolmen. Went back to super ancient things that are opposing. Exactly. And so he has uh, a lot of, uh, of attention paid to things like the, the golden mean and sacred geometry, which again, that's a pretty normally architectural thing to do, but being Corbu, he sort of pulls it a little far and he starts talking about, uh, Pythagorean insights, which is always a good, uh, signal that someone is going off the deep end. And he has a, a strong fascination as well for, um, uh, the, uh, the compagnonage, which were the mystic architects, of Chart Cathedral and things like that. And if you get the notion that he's trying to strip away all of the Christian and Gothic parts from Chart and turn them into, into the fundamental occult truths, you maybe get another door into his overarching architectural theses. So do you uh, feel that this uh, is a legit occult angle that uh, the author of that book is really onto something or is this entertaining flakiness? I think that the author, um, uh, the, the, the book is actually, it's a beautiful book. And certainly if you like looking at Le Corbusier illustrations and buildings, and you think of them as sort of the illustrations of this, of this thought, it's a beautiful book, but he really leans on that masonry thing very, very, very hard. And then at the end, he says, look, uh, there's a guy named Charles Genere that was in the Masons, but it's not our Charles Genere. And it's like, Really? That's what you've got is a guy with the same name as in the Masons. Uh, and, and so it, it really lets it, it side down and it's more annoying because, uh, Berkstead does not go into the alchemical stuff 
that I think there's a, a, a stronger argument for when you look at a poem of the right angle. And he doesn't talk about Orphism. He doesn't really get into the whole notion of the fascist uh, 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 occult that, uh, Corbu would have uh, been exposed to. He, for example, he edited a syndicalist journal. And if you remember, we've talked about uh, the syndicalists before. And, uh, he doesn't really talk about the connections between a Le Corbusier planned, uh, city and the old mystical utopians that go all the way back to like, uh, Campanella, uh, in, uh, the Renaissance. And so, I think that Berkstead is like, uh, sort of so focused on this masonry theme, the notion that masonry takes a bunch of different occult structures and puts them into an organization, and that that's what he, uh, Berkstead says Le Corbu does with the architecture, that I think he misses a lot of really, uh, prime territory to examine. And the trouble. So, so what I'm hearing is that he doesn't make his case, but you could. I could make his case, yes. If someone gave me the budget for that book, I could make a, a, uh, more occulty version of it. And I'll tell you what, my big reveal would not be, look, someone who is not him was a Mason. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in our uh, uh, fictional and gaming worlds where we're just free to make things up and don't even have to make a case, how do we uh, turn uh, Le Corbusier into, say, uh, he's active in the 30s? So uh, how do we uh, tie him into a Trail of Cthulhu scenario? Well, um, I actually had a uh, Trail of Cthulhu scenario that is inspired by Le Corbusier and by the Bauhaus called The Black Chateau, which is in the um, uh, Shadows Over Filmland uh, collection in which the characters find themselves in a, a modernist haunted house that is haunted by modernism, specifically by Carcosa, which is sort of the, in, in my reading is the, is the, is the face of modernism coming toward us. And of course it terrifies people in the 1890s. Um, but the, uh, uh, but, but so you can have something where he's got his house built on these sort of specific number ratios and the number ratios, uh, invoke, uh, some more numerical, of the of the old ones, Deoloth or or um, uh, even near Lathotep, if you've uh, got Isra's thousand forms has a number, maybe it invokes one of those specific ones. Uh, the the number of of brutalist angles that Lovecraft saw in Rillier that show up in uh, Corbu's architecture is not a coincidence. As it happens, Lovecraft is reacting to the very beginnings of modernist architecture uh, at the time that he's writing about. Um, uh, 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 really, yeah, because he has just come back from New York where they're beginning to knock down pretty old buildings and put up horrible modernist buildings. Although they're also putting up some very nice Art Deco buildings, which Lovecraft also didn't like, in fairness. Um, and then I think that another thing that you can deal with, uh, this is the notion of the, of the, of, of the city radiant, the, 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 uh, the architecturally organized city as a modernist Arkham, right? The thing that Arkham has got uh, is that it goes all the way back. It's got this ancient, uh, past that is bleeding forward into the mundane present. But I think that with something like, uh, the Radiant City, you can have the future that's bleeding back into the, 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 the present. And the future, of course, is horrible and inhuman. It's the cruel empire of San Chan. It's the great race of Yith. It's the, uh, Coleopt the hardy Coleopterans. It's the, the end times of the mythos. And if that architecture, which is futuristic, is being built, in the 1930s that you can sort of reverse uh, a witch house with it, right? Right. And uh, the sort of a, the crumbling of uh, brutalism occurs in the 70s, and that brings to mind the sort of classic work of being trapped in a, a brutalist Le Corbusier-style concrete tower and going slowly insane as a result of the uh, depredations of the residents, including the imperious... Uh, architect who leaves at the top of it is uh, Ballard, J.G. Ballard's High Rise, mm -hmm. uh, which will be coming to a, a movie theater near you in the form of its uh, film adaptation by Ben Wheatley with Jeremy Irons as the imperious architect. Uh, so you can uh, read that now or keep an eye out for the uh, the film to come. Are there other sort of echoes in uh, pop culture that you um, I, I You were talking about the, the crumbling of modern architecture. Obviously, the J-horror is a big uh, because Japan built a ton of modernist, uh, buildings after it got bombed flat in World War II. They built, they had to build something. And it turns out one of the things that's good about modernism is it's super cheap to build. Um, and so the, the J horror, uh, concentration on, uh, crumbling urban environments is also very much a tribute, if you will, to Le Corbusier's influence 
on uh, the world. Yeah, pretty much every Kiyoshi Kurosawa film has some sort of sequence in a uh, horrible concrete industrial looking structure that has seen better days. And then you can even, you know, go all the way out to something like the, uh, I think it was a Canadian movie, right? Cube, where they're all yes. trapped in that puzzle cube and there's horrible monstrous traps. Um, I think you could sort of look at that as a, as a, as a metaphor for modernist architecture, or you can certainly look at it for that instead of looking at it as a psychological thriller, which it isn't, but it is right. kind of fun. It's uh, directed by Vincenzo Natale, who did uh, Splice and a lot of the best episodes of Hannibal. Oh, and the other thing uh, I want to call out is Mr. X, Dean Motter's comic book, which is a really great uh, sort of a reimagined modernist Batman. Mr. X is the architect who built uh, the Radiant City and went insane as a result of it. And so his whole city has sick building syndrome. And so... He has come back as his own vigilante to sort of undo what he did to his his version of, of Gotham to, to 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 heal Radiant City by super heroics. And it's sort of uh, it's philosophically really interesting. It sort of t pulls in a little bit of objectivism, a little of the old um, uh, Howard Rourke heroic architect thing, although I'm pretty sure Rand and Corbu would not have had a lot in common. Um, except they're both annoying. I think there's an imperiousness. <laughs> there is. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that they would not have seemed similar to other people. I'm saying that at a theoretical luncheon between them, there would have been a lot of icy glares and yes. not a lot of talking. Um, which I guess is sort of a, re a refreshing vacation for people who knew both of them. Um, <laughs> we got to get those two together more often. Uh, anyway, but the, uh, but, but Mr. X is a great comic book. It's one of the few sort of original, comics, I guess, since Steve Ditko stopped uh, inventing things. And uh, I recommend looking at that for sort of a, a modernist inflected, uh, super heroic aesthetic. Right. And that has the spirit of Toronto in it, um, as does the sort of there's a whole brutalist aesthetic that infuses Cronenberg as well, because here in the city, we had uh, our plague of concrete uh, brutalist towers in the in the 70s. And that sort of uh, uh, underpins a lot of Cronenberg uh, as well, and uh, the sort of Cronenberg tribute film uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow as well uh, fits into uh, Le Corbusier-infused uh, uh, horror and science fiction. Uh, well, I think we've uh, once we've reached uh, the bibliography, we've reached uh, the end of uh, yet another episode of this uh, podcast. So thanks for listening, everybody, and please join us again next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Show your agrarian prosperity the Ebenezer Inglesby way by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff com. Thus joining the ranks of such illustrious patrons as Russell Spicklemeyer. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>